for joining us, everyone. Uh, it's a great privilege for me to see you all up here and uh, get to come up and, and open God's word before you tonight. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the last few weeks going through the Lord's Prayer with Tom. Uh, it was just kind of a, a fun change of gears for a little while, I know for me, just to be reminded of how important, how wonderful, how amazing prayer is, and just how much we need to prioritize that. Um, and so tonight, we're going to be picking up once again uh, with our study through the Old Testament. Uh, so we started some time back uh, the book of Genesis, um, finished Exodus, and then most recently Leviticus. And so we're getting ready tonight to start our study through the book of Numbers. But before we get started on that, uh, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time looking at the context of the book of Numbers. As we study the scriptures, we see how important context is to interpreting the meaning of individual verses, of um, passages from the Bible, and even of understanding how entire books of the Bible fit together and form the cohesive whole that we have as our Bible today. And so the background for numbers starts all the way back in Genesis. This is, again, some time ago that we were studying through Genesis. And so we see in the book of Genesis the beginning, how everything started. We see God's creation of the world, that he created it out of nothing, that he made everything good, and that he created mankind with a specific purpose and a special relationship to himself, that man was designed to live in unity with God, to serve him, to work, and to worship him, and to just enjoy that fellowship with God. And we see uh, shortly thereafter in Genesis the fall of mankind, that this perfect world did not exist in that state for very long, that sin entered into the world through uh, the choice of Adam and Eve to stray from God's plan, to question his goodness, and to engage in what they thought would be best rather than what God had told them would be best. And so the entry of sin into the world brought a curse upon mankind and upon the entire world. Uh, we see that death enters into the world with this, that hardship and suffering come along with that. This is a terrible, terrible event in the history of humanity. But we see in the midst of that curse that God also gave a promise of hope, an offer of salvation, that he promises Eve that one of her offspring would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent who would restore mankind to their right relationship with God and help them to live once again in that perfect unity and communion with their creator as they'd been created to do. Uh, we see the book of Genesis continue on from there. Um, the entry of sin into the world caused so much pain, so much suffering, so many terrible things that go on seemingly immediately after their exit from the Garden of Eden. Uh, we see with the story of Noah that God had to destroy the world, bring an end to almost all of mankind because they had become so sinful. And we see God's justice in that. We also see God's mercy, his preservation of Noah and his family through the flood and the continuation of that promise to bring about a deliverer from the offspring of Eve. We see God choose Abraham out of the midst of the peoples and choose to make him a great nation that God made a special covenant with Abraham, 
that he promised Abraham that his offspring, his children, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and that they would experience as part of this covenant great blessing, that they would be given a land to dwell in, to be plentiful and to have peace and rest. Uh, we see also that, again, that the, the offspring of Abraham would grow into a mighty nation and through his children, the entire world would be blessed, continuing this promise given from the very entry of sin into the world. And we see also in this promise given to Abraham, God warns him that his people, his children, will experience slavery and great suffering in a foreign land for 400 years. And after that, they would be led out to the land that God had promised them. And we see these promises continued, uh, just reiterated, restated, uh, from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And then we see the story of Joseph, that Joseph, uh, as, as most of us have heard, uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, brought to the land of Egypt. And through this terrible event, after some twists and turns, is able to save his family that would become that nation. Uh, they're, so they're brought into the land of Egypt, um, and there they dwell for a time, but shortly thereafter are, are placed in slavery to the rulers of Egypt. And so the people of Israel are enslaved, and God continues to bless them in many ways, to grow them uh, from a, a family um, to a great nation over the course of a few hundred years. And they're still suffering under the yoke of slavery, and they cry out to God for help. And so we see in Exodus that God chooses Moses to be the leader of this people, that he calls him out of the wilderness, uh, in many ways a, a rather unlikely leader, but God had a special purpose for Moses in mind. And so we see Moses called, brought out of the wilderness back to Egypt in order to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land, to fulfill this promise that was made to Abraham and to continue building towards the ultimate fulfillment of that promise of a deliverer from sin. And so Moses comes into Egypt. Uh, God strikes the land with many plagues, shows many signs and wonders to Pharaoh in order to convince him of his power, uh, of his greatness, to put that on display to the people there and to many parts of the world even. And also to just convince him to release the people of Israel out of this slavery. And so we see Pharaoh finally relent and release the people of Israel. We see them cross the Red Sea and journey out in the, into the desert to Mount Sinai. And so geographically, this is the same place we're going to pick up in the book of Numbers. And so Israel camps out at Mount Sinai for somewhere around a year they spend there. Uh, and their initial arrival there, God gives them his covenant uh, that they would dwell under as they go into the promised land, that promises blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, the people are told that if they follow God and live according to his statutes and his regulations, that he will bless them, that they will be fruitful, that they will be successful and have an abundance in the land they dwell in. But if they fail to follow God's commands and live up to those standards, that they'll experience suffering, um, even to the point of being removed from the promised land if they disobey to that point. And so we see the giving of the covenant, we see God give the 10 commandments written on stone tablets. 
that these are given to the people of Israel as a reflection of God's character and helping give them the laws that would govern their relationship with him and the way that they would live life in the promised land. The people of Israel, uh, unfortunately, as all people, are quick to forget and rebelled against God uh, in idolatry. We see the incident where they create the golden calf and worship that even while Moses is still up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And so we see just the the issues that come along with that. Um, And that brings us into Leviticus. Uh, So the book of Leviticus where we just were, um, for those of you that remember, deals primarily with God's holiness that it spends a great deal of time developing the importance of God holiness, God's holiness and just how it is that God, who is absolutely holy, desired to live among these people who were sinful and how that was going to work, what the people had to do in order to be holy before their God and to have that intimate relationship, God dwelling in their midst despite their sinfulness. And so Leviticus lays out uh, the sacrifices to deal with sin, sacrifices of thanksgiving, the rituals um, they would have to follow to keep that relationship with God at the state it should be in, and also just how they were to live life, that they were to be a people set apart for God and for his glory, that they were to live life differently from those around them, especially as they traveled into Canaan, a place where the people were known for their wickedness and the ways that they lived life that were not honoring to God. And so really this time is preparing the people of Israel to live in the land that God had promised them, to be God's chosen people and to make his name known throughout the earth. And we see also throughout Exodus and Leviticus a great deal of God's grace, that God promises uh, punishment and suffering for disobedience But we also see a promise of God's faithfulness that overrides that. That even if mankind fails to uphold their part of the covenant, their side of the deal, that God would remain faithful. And so that brings us to numbers. So they've been given the law. The people of Israel still camped out at Mount Sinai. And they're preparing to break their camp, to begin the journey further through the wilderness to the land of Canaan, to the land God had promised them. Uh, So the book of Numbers, um, the name itself doesn't excite a lot of interest for most of us here today, I don't think. Uh, it's, It's not one that's reputed to be one of the more exciting books of the Bible. I don't think you'd be able to walk up to too many people and say, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I don't think you'd hear numbers a whole lot. Um, So the name is taken uh, from the beginning and the ending of the book record a census, two separate censuses, sensei, sensei, I don't know if they'll be like a karate math master or what, but um, record two separate census of the people of Israel. Uh, How many people came out of the land of Egypt, and then as they journey through the wilderness, um, how many people are there again as they prepare to enter into the promised land? Um, So the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers can be translated as in the wilderness, which is much more descriptive of the book as a whole. Uh, we see the book of Numbers, it, again, it, it's bookended by these kind of dull, kind of hard to read, um, just genealogies almost. 
But really, in between the two, there's a lot of very interesting, very compelling material that is still very relevant for us here today. Uh, that this is the connection between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land and all that happens there. And some of the questions that are raised in the book of Numbers are, will the sin and rebellion of God's people stop God's plan? Also, how will a holy God respond when people turn away from him? What are the consequences of sin? And will God protect his people from the many external threats that they face on their journey? And we learn a lot about God as we study through the book of Numbers. We learn a lot about mankind as well. That the nature of man hasn't changed over the last many thousands of years. Um, that we face many of the same problems that the Israelites did on their journey through the wilderness. They manifest themselves differently, but our hearts are not all that different. And we see God's faithfulness to his people. We see God's desire to bless his people. But we also see God's people's continued rebellion against him. We see their distrust of his promises. And we see their ungratefulness for his work. And through it all, we see God's sovereignty. That despite all the threats, despite complaints and rebellion and unfaithfulness by the people, that God is working at all according to his plan and that he is faithful to bring about the good that he had promised so many generations before. As we look at the book of Numbers, um, so it's broken up a little differently. Uh, the book of Leviticus covered a relatively short period of time as Moses was recording all the laws given to the people of Israel. Uh, numbers as a whole covers somewhere around 40 years. Uh, it's broken up uh, a little differently. So the first 10 chapters, where we're going to be the next few weeks, uh, covers just 19 days as Israel prepares to break their camp, to pack up their things, and to move on the way to the promised land. Chapters 10 through 14 uh, cover merely 10 days. And then chapters 15 through 19 cover the course of 37 years as the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. There's not a lot of detail given over that time frame. And then the last few chapters, um, it's just 10 months as they're preparing to enter into the promised land finally. Uh, so kind of a brief outline of the book. So it begins with the census of the people, gives uh, some various laws are restated, kind of rehashed the importance of sanctification of the priests and of the people. And a recording of the people taking Passover, observing the festival of remembrance of their deliverance from slavery by God and his provision of that special lamb. Uh, we see the next section of the book is the Israelites traveling on the move as they move from Mount Sinai closer to Canaan, to the promised land. We see the people grumble and complain about God's provision for them. And we see God answer that by providing quail for them to eat instead of just the manna that he gives them. Uh, again, a little variety here, but also punishes them for their grumbling. We see rebellion shortly thereafter from Miriam and Aaron, Moses' own siblings, question his authority and God's choosing of him. Uh, we see them punished because of that. 
And then we see Israel camp on the border of Canaan next to the promised land and send out the spies to scout out the land. Uh, the spies scout out the land, return back, um, give not the greatest report. Um, they, they send out one man from each tribe to see what it looks like and uh, what they're getting themselves into. And 10 of them um, just say that, you know, we can't do it. That this is too much. The people are too mighty. That um, this, this isn't going to work. Even though God had promised the land to them. And we see Joshua and Caleb, the two who are faithful. They say, yes, it is it is difficult, you know, there's, there's some issues there, but the land is good and God is with us. And so the people side with the majority of the spies who say that it can't be done and question God bringing them there. Uh, they even go to the point of staging a rebellion, of trying to usurp Moses' authority and go back to Egypt. Um, so this is a, a pretty low point in the book. Uh, we see because of that, because of their rebellion, that God says that none of the adults who were ready at that point to enter in the promised land will be, will be able to. That as punishment, they will wander in the desert for 40 years until that entire generation has died off and the next generation has grown and is ready to lead that, that charge into the land of Canaan. As they're wandering through the wilderness, we see Moses even reach a point of failure, that he um, doesn't honor God as holy when God commands him to, to provide water for the people. Um, he doesn't follow God's directions. And because of that, Moses' punishment is that he too will die before the people enter the land of Israel. And so we see at this point uh, that the people of Israel begin traveling again. Uh, they, they wander in the desert. There's that big section that doesn't get talked about too much, not a lot of details, um, as that generation dies off. And then they begin to journey again up towards the promised land. They have to travel around the land of Edom. Uh, we see the death of Aaron. Uh, we see some more complaining, some more questioning of God and uh, rebellion, and that God punishes that by sending poisonous snakes into the camp. Uh, many people are bitten, people die, and we see God give Moses the command to create this bronze serpent to raise up on a stick, and everyone who sees it will be healed. And so with that, we see somewhat of a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Um, as they move on from there, we see Israel have their first victories in battle as they prepare to enter into the promised land. And then towards the very end, we have some interesting events that happen as they're camped out on the plains, as they're getting ready to enter into the land, making these final preparations to go in and begin the conquest. Uh, we see the story of Balaam, the talking donkey. And we'll get into more detail with that one later. Um, but we see God's sovereignty, that he blesses the people of Israel through a man who had been hired to curse them, to bring harm to them that God was so powerful that he could bring that about. Uh, we see the people again fall into the mistakes of idolatry and bring punishment on themselves because of that. We see a census taken again to, to count the number of people um, after that generation died off and the next one had, had grown up to get ready to go into the land. Uh, we see the appointment of Joshua with that as Moses' successor to lead the people. And it closes out uh, just discussing how portions of the land will be divided between the tribes of Israel 
anticipating this fulfillment of the promise of the people being able to go into the land of Canaan, to dwell in it, and to have that rest and success that God had promised them. And so really, a lot of the book of Numbers is a journey, a journey for the people of Israel as they they wander through the desert, as they experience some ups and downs and make some mistakes and see God work as they journey to the land God is giving them. And I think the modern analogy of this uh, would be somewhat similar to a road trip uh, for all of us. I know, um, I I think all of us probably have some sort of memorable family road trip things we can think back to, different experiences we've had with that. Um, But a lot of how a road trip goes depends on how we respond to the unexpected events along the way. Um, I think one of my, my favorite road trips to think back on, uh, when I was in college, I had the, the privilege of competing in track and field for a, a small school in South Dakota. And so we traveled a lot. We were pretty isolated from other places where we'd compete, other schools we compete against. Um, but we had one year where we had a coaching transition we were in the middle of, and we were um, preparing to go to this meet at the very end of the season, and we'd run out of money in the budget. That's kind of a problem. We, you know, we need vehicles and gas to get there and somewhere to stay. And so our coach scrambles and kind of gets some stuff together, and we end up um, piling a bunch of, bunch of college students and one coach into a minivan we'd borrowed from a car dealership. And uh, one of my friends had an old Chrysler LHS that his parents had given him. And so we've got all these people crammed into these cars and we go out to eastern Nebraska and we have our, our track meet and everything goes well. But since we're trying, you know, we don't have much money to spend on this, we get done with the track meet probably around five or six in the evening. And we load back in the cars and plan on driving all the way back across Nebraska, back up into South Dakota and back home, which is uh, probably about an eight-hour drive from where we And so we get some food and head out of town, high spirits, ready to go. It was a good day. Um, And pretty soon it starts getting dark. And as it gets dark, it gets later. We, you know, are taking turns, people driving. And um, so at some point, our coach decides he's tired. He's going to take a nap. And so I swap spots with him, and I'm driving the van, following my friend in the car. And we're we're headed out, you know, across, across Nebraska. And... At some point, I don't know if they, this was right around when GPS was starting to get popular in cars and um, cell phones. But So at some point, somebody decided they were going to take us on a little detour off the interstate and on some two-lane highways and across Nebraska. So we find ourselves probably somewhere around 2 in the morning driving across the Rosebud Indian Reservation in the middle of the night. Um, and I remember the, the point I questioned what we were doing was we're on a bunch of rolling hills, and I see, and we're probably driving faster than we should have been, I don't remember the details, but we, I see my buddy's Chrysler go down this hill and come back up, and I see the back bumper hit the road and throw sparks up in the air. I'm thinking, what are we doing here? Like, I don't know if this is necessarily the best. Fortunately, uh, we all made it home safe and alive. I'm sure none of this would happen today. There's far too many rules that have been put in place since then. But 
the way we responded to that event made all the difference. That because we greeted the unknown with enthusiasm, with acceptance, and just tried to make the most of a less than ideal situation, things went pretty well. On this journey, this trip with the people of Israel, we see them greet the unknown, the unforeseen, with grumbling and complaining and rebellion. And because of their response to these things, we see God bring about punishment. We see consequences for their actions. That God is still faithful to them, but that they do suffer the consequences of their sinful choices. So that being said, let's dive into the text. Uh, We're going to cover a a little bit of ground here tonight. Um, We we won't be reading straight through um, some of the the tougher portions of it. Uh, So the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers, by their families, excuse me, by their households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And so we see God command a census as the first thing. And we see one of the key phrases in this is all of the people who are able to go out to war. That this isn't a census of the entire nation. They're not trying to get a full population count to cover every single man, woman, child. That this is a census to take stock of the fighting men as they build their army and prepare for the conquest of Canaan. That they're just wanting to know who it is that is able to serve in the army as they're doing this. And so these numbers given, it's not counting all the people. This is just the adult men who are able to serve and fight. Picking up in verse four. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These then are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Of Reuben, Elazur, the son of Shedjur. Of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai. Of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. Of the sons of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. Of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazer. Of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. Of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akran. Of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deul. Of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These are they who were called of the congregation the leaders of their father's tribes. They were the heads of divisions of Israel. And so as we read through some of these, um, I always tell people, you know, a lot of these, these genealogies and listing of names, it's a great place if you're looking for, for baby names. My wife and I are expecting right now, so I like to, to throw out some of these. Um, so far, she hasn't been real enthusiastic about names like Shalumiel and Zerubbabel, but oh well, I try. That being said, uh, so these men are the leaders of the tribes that are to meet with Moses as they try to tally up the totals of the people and prepare to go to war. Uh, that these guys help make the count of the people. Picking up in verse 17, they begin the census. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name 
and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. Then they registered by ancestry in their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,000, 500. And so as I start the census, start numbering the fighting men, uh, they go through all the tribes this way. And so it follows the same format. Um, the sons of Reuben, etc., Israel's firstborn, um, or in the case of Reuben at least, uh, genealogical registration kind of follows the same format there, um, just laying out how they're totaling these people, where they're coming from, and how many of them there are. And so as we kind of skim over these few verses here. Uh, we see that there's 46,500 men from the tribe of Reuben, 59,300 from Simeon, 45,650 from Gad, 74,600 from Judah, 54,400 from Issachar, 57,400 from Zebulun, 40,500 from Ephraim, 32,200 from Manasseh, 35,400 from Benjamin, 62,700 from Dan, 41,500 from Asher, 53,400 from Naphtali. Uh, so again, just totaling up all the people and then picking up in verse 44, it says, these are the ones who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered with the leaders of Israel, 12 men, each of whom was of his father's household. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's households from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war in Israel, even all the numbered men were 603,550. And so that's the total for the whole nation of Israel. Uh, so if we figure 600,000 plus men, adult men able to fight, that works out to a lot of people. Now, this is a large group. Um, you know, if we, we imagine the whole state of Wyoming just as the army, and then we throw in, you know, another however many women and children there were along with the group. This is a lot of people that God is having Moses organize and prepare for this journey. Uh, just, it's amazing to think about the logistics of that. Just God providing food, providing water for them, providing places for them to camp. Um, it's incredible to look at. Uh, there is an exception to the number of, of men that were able to fight. In verse 47, it says, The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, each man by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel." So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. 
Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And so we see in this section here that the Levites were not included in this tally of the fighting force, that they were separated out from that. They had a different role, um, a very special role that God had set them apart for. That the Levites were to take care of the tabernacle. They were to, um, as, as you remember from our previous studies in Leviticus, to take, carry out all the sacrifices, um, to see the tabernacle being set up and taken down, and really in some ways to guard it, to protect it. Um, it talks about that if a, a layman, someone who's not a Levite, comes near to the tabernacle without a reason that they're to be put to death, that this is the place where God's holiness is dwelling. And the Levites were to be the guards for that, to make sure that everyone remembered how important that was and that they treated that place with reverence. So moving into chapter two, again, we're kind of going through some of this quickly with all the the counting and the numbers. But uh, Chapter two starts off saying, now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, the sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah, by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Judah, Nation, the son of Amenadab, and his army, even their numbered men, 74,600. And so we see in chapter 2, it begins to lay out how the people were to be arranged, how they were to build their camp. There was a specific order they were to follow. They were to be camped out tribe by tribe with their certain kind of allotted spot around the tabernacle. And so we see, again, just that God has a specific plan. He has a specific order he desires from this. and He's giving them very specific instructions to follow as they do this. And so continuing on, in verse 5, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, and the leader of the sons of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, and his army, even their numbered men, 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun, and the leader of the sons of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, and his army, even his numbered men, 57,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400 by their armies. They shall set out first. And so we see as they're laying this out, this is the order, the way their camp is to be set and arranged, this is also the order they're to go in as they break camp and begin to journey on their way to their next campsite. And so there's a specific order there to go in. Um, It lays out kind of the same format, much like the census, uh, talking about which tribe goes where, how many of them there were. Um, Just kind of to quickly look at that, on the east side, we see the tribes of Judah Issachar and Zebulun were to camp out. On the south side, we see Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were allotted to camp there. And then we see in verse 17, God gives some specific instructions for the Levites in the tabernacle. Verse 17 says, Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. Just as they camp, so they shall set out every man in his place by their standards. And so the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the Levites, the place where God dwelled and where their worship was centered, was to be in the center of the camp and in the center of the nation as they're moving. 
that God was to be at the center of all they did, that they built their camp around God to be reminded of the importance of him, that they would all be able to see the cloud of God's glory that as it guided them and directed them, that that would be very obvious to the entire nation. That this was the most important part of the camp and it was the reference point that everything else was built around. Uh, so that's, again, the importance of it being in the center. Chapter 2, verse 18. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud, and his army, even their numbered men, 40,500. And it continues, again, that same format, laying out which tribe goes where, how many of them there were. The west side uh, was to be the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. The north was to be Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. So again, a very even orderly kind of division of the people um, with their set places. Every time they stopped, they would know where to go. The, the tabernacle would be put up in the center of the camp underneath the glory cloud, uh, and that they would spread the rest of the camp out around it. Uh, skipping ahead, so again, that just lays out the the camp, how it's to be ordered, and how they're to march. Moving to chapter 2, verse 32. It says, These are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's households, the total of the numbered men of the camps by their armies, 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out everyone by his family, according to his father's household. And so we see the people of Israel, at least for this portion of the, the journey, followed God's commands. They saw where they were supposed to be, what they were supposed to be doing, and they did it. That They were following God's regulations and following this order God had given them. And so, as we continue on, through the book of Numbers, uh, we'll see these journeys continue. We'll see the people of Israel um, continue to, to make decisions, some good, some not so good, as they follow God. Uh, but we see some lessons for all of us. Now, the book of Numbers has a lot of application for us here today. We see God's faithfulness and his love for his people. We see growth through trials. The, the concept of the wilderness is such a big one within scripture. We see the wilderness used as a time of purifying, of drawing people closer to God, of purging sin from them and preparing them for the work that God would do. And so we see this concept developed a lot in the book of Numbers too. And we think about how the book of Numbers applies to us today. Um, Numbers is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament at least 70 times. So there's a lot in here that shows up again as we read the New Testament. The more we understand the book of Numbers, the better we can understand that. We'll also see in the coming weeks God's continued work to accomplish his plans and his promises. That failure to obey by his people won't stop God's promises. That failure by God's chosen leader won't stop him. That 
opposition from the people around the Israelites won't stop God from fulfilling his promises. We'll also see God's sovereign ability to work through whatever situation he chooses and with whatever people he chooses. The people that don't even wish to obey God, if God chooses to use them, he will. And I think one of the biggest things that we're going to learn in the coming weeks as we study Numbers is about mankind's rebellious heart and nature. And we're going to see the Israelites do a lot of stupid things. We're going to probably stand back and want to question, like, why? Why? Like, come on, guys, it's right there. He told you what was going to happen. But at the end of the day, we're not all that different from the Israelites, that we still have doubts, that we're still prone to look for satisfaction apart from God, that we can still rebel against God's leading, that we can still be drawn to give our attention in idolatrous worship of other things, that it's easy for us to forget the good God has done for us and become ungrateful. And we've been given new hearts by God, those of us that know him under the new covenant, but we're still burdened by that sin nature and it's a constant struggle to bring that into submission to the spirit and live in a way that brings glory to God. And so we learn a lot about mankind through this. Uh, In the coming weeks, we'll also see a lot of God's character that we learn about God's sovereignty and his justice. Uh, The book of Romans talks about the kindness and severity of God. There's two sides to that. And I think the book of Numbers is a great illustration of this. Um, One commentator I read said this was maybe one of the best illustrations of the kindness and severity of God was the book of Numbers. And we learn, as uh, one teacher I was listening to says, that rebellion against God never goes anywhere good. That it seems like a good idea at the time, it doesn't pan out. And we need to be reminded of that. And one of the, the primary, or one of the biggest, I think, references to the book of Numbers in the New Testament is found in 1 Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 10 kind of gives us just a summary of why we should pay attention to the book of Numbers, why we should read it, why we should know it and remember its importance. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 10, starting off in verse 1, says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. These next verses, or this next verse, I'm sure a lot of you have heard. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so in Numbers, we see the fruit of sin and of rebellion. That Numbers, in many ways, serves as a warning for us today that straying from God's plan leads to death and destruction and ruin. That we are to take heed of these lessons and know that we can be led away from God's goodness and his blessing just as easily. That we need to beware of the pitfalls of sin and of idolatry and of ungratefulness. And so in conclusion, for us here today in Cheyenne, Wyoming in 2020, in many ways, we could think of of this as kind of a time in the wilderness. I'm sure many of us have experienced some trials of varying types this past year, have experienced temptation and doubt. I'm sure some of us have struggled to see God's hand in difficult circumstances. And I think all of us probably need to be reminded of God's sovereign ability to bring good out of any situation. And so these next few weeks, I'd encourage us to spend time in the book of Numbers, to be excited, to get to know more about who God is, understand more of who we are as people, and how we can better know him, love him, and serve him. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for the book of Numbers. Um, Even though it's difficult reading at times, I thank you for the important lessons that you give us in that. I pray that you would be with us as we begin the journey through this book, Lord. I pray that you would guide us through here, uh, that we would be attentive to the lessons in this book, Lord, and that we would be quick to repent of any sin that that brings, brings to our minds, Lord, and that we would seek you through it all, Lord. I pray that we would strive to be faithful to the calling you've given each and every one of us, God, that we would glorify you in our lives and make you known to the world around us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.